Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Uh, it is it's Friday. And so how about middays with Mark? Congressman Mark Pocan on for the hour, taking your calls. Uh, brilliantly representing the 2nd District of Wisconsin. He's also the co-chair of the Congressional Prog- Progressive Caucus. Uh, you can uh, find his website, uh, Pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep, R-E-P, Mark Pocan, M-A-R-K, Pocan, P-O-C-A-N. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Quite a week. <laughs> Indeed. And I don't know if you caught the news. I mean, literally broke in the last four minutes. Uh, Sean Spicer just resigned in protest over the appointment of Anthony Scaramucci as the White House communications director. I think there are a lot of people at Saturday Night Live right now who are very, very sad. Yeah, Melissa McCarthy just <laughs> lost McCarthy. a gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's very strange. It's very, very strange. So, uh, you know, I saw this story yesterday. Uh, the the first first one I saw was on uh, Huffington Post about how uh, it was an analysis of the New York Times interview and how Trump said, "Well, you know, you pay twelve dollars a year for insurance starting when you get right out of college." And you and you pay that twelve dollars a year until you're seventy, and by then you actually have some insurance. And I thought that's weird. And then it turns out that back in May, in an interview with the Economist, he said the exact same thing, except it was fifteen dollars a month rather than twelve dollars a year. Um, what what the heck is going on? Does this guy, uh, you know, not understand the difference between the term life insurance he sees advertised on Fox News and how health insurance works? And is this a problem that goes beyond the president? Does the entire Republican caucus not understand how health insurance works? Well, you know, Tom, you got to remember, and I'm not saying that if you're a wealthy person, you can't relate to other people. But, you know, over half of Congress are millionaires. Um, you know, look at Daryl Issa and some of these other folks who are multi multi Oh, he's worth like $900 million, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so to them, 12 15 1000 it's all kind of the same, right? It just yeah. doesn't, it, it's not a lot of money. And uh, to those of the rest of us, um, you know, we were kind of shocked to see that. I mean, that interview in and of itself, I had retweeted something. I'm forgetting the exact words they used, but basically um, they were comparing it to someone who, like, just took a hit of acid uh, as he gave the interview because he ran in so many different areas, and um, uh, it, it was such a bizarre interview. But 
to show that disconnect as they are taking away health care from, uh, you know, under one of the most recent proposals, now 32 um, million people in this country, uh, you know, they just don't get it. They really don't get what real people care about, which is why, you know, when I look at in my neighboring district, you know, Paul Ryan's district, uh, you know, he, he, uh, He's gone very Washington uh, clearly these days as speaker. You know, you got a guy like Randy Bryce who is an iron worker who's running, and he can talk about stuff. You know, he said, "Let's trade jobs." I mean, let's let's make people understand what you actually pay out of your copay and what the actual insurance costs per month. Let's make them understand the basic economics of what people talk about at their kitchen table. You know, can you afford your mortgage? Can you have health insurance for your family? Can you send your kids to college if they want to go? And can you take a family vacation? That's what real people think about, not what people like Donald Trump and I think the Republican majority thinks about. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And, and in fact, uh, it, Paul Ryan, you mentioned Paul Ryan. Um, sometime in the recent past, I don't have the article in front of me here. I was, I was riffing off of it yesterday. Um, but uh, sometime in the recent past, Paul Ryan made the comment that, you know, you can't have a sustainable system where healthy young people are paying for sicker old people. And I thought that was the whole point of health insurance. We pay into it our whole lives and so that when we need it, it's there. But you, you got to remember, Tom, when I first was running for Congress, this is now going back about five years, maybe five and a half, um, was, it was the same week that he was seen uh, out having uh, two, two $350 bottles of wine with a couple lobbyists for dinner. And I remember that. Yeah, remember that? I, that was the week I happened to be out there when I was running. When people can drink multiple bottles of $350 bottle of wine, you aren't in touch anymore with real people. Yeah. Well, and that was that was, uh, as I recall, dinner with a couple of lobbyists at a fancy schmancy yeah. restaurant here in Washington D.C. So, uh, okay, so there's there's that and the, this whole healthcare thing. Uh, we're talking, by the way, with Congressman Mark Pocan today. It's middays with Mark. He will be taking your calls as soon as I'm done interrogating him. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question of Congressman Pocan, uh, interrogating, sorry. Uh, uh, give us a call. Give him a call at uh, 202-808-9925. Your opportunity to talk to a member of Congress and one of the very best. Um, Congressman, uh, Jeff Sessions uh, has instructed the nation's police to ramp back up civil asset forfeiture, uh, at least the federal uh, agencies, after President Obama put a stop to it. In 2015, the the federal authorities in the United States seized over $3.2 billion worth of cash and assets from Americans who were never convicted of crimes. And that amount is more than all the burglars in the country stole that year. <laughs> I, I, you yeah. know, I, that, this is mind boggling to me. Yeah, and, and, you know, they, and the way they did a lot of this was get around state laws that actually were stricter so they could bump things to federal court so they could actually take some of the things that they, they took from people, again, without any conviction. So um, the fact that Jeff Sessions in, in this Department of Justice is overturning the changes that were made by the Obama administration to get rid of that uh, is pretty amazing. Um, even more amazing, I think, is the fact that, you know, the president talked about saying he never would have made Jeff Sessions the AG if he knew he was going to recuse himself on Russia, right? So yeah. the Department of Justice was big in the news also this week uh, on multiple fronts uh, that, again, just show that complete disconnect with reality that this White House has. Yeah, it, 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 it's really, really extraordinary. And the, the whole civil asset forfeiture thing, I just... I, I, it's so wrong. I don't know how we got on that road, where it started, or it, it, I think it came along with Nixon's war on drugs. But um, 
boy, what a what a what a non you know small D democracy democratic thing. Anyhow, yeah, Congressman, you expect of America. Indeed, Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. Middays with Mark here on the Tom Hartman program, and he is taking your call right after this break. Congressman Pocan represents the second district of Wisconsin. He's also the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And his uh, website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rep, Mark, M-A-R-K, Pocan, P-O-C, for the record. And welcome back. George in Santee, California, watching us on Free Speech TV. George, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, thank you, Tom, and uh, good day to you and Congressman Pocan. Uh, Mr. Pocan, I would like to know your position on our foreign policy in the Middle East. Sure, uh, George. It's a little broad. There's a lot of things there. I, I think, in general, let me say say this, and I think this is probably true of many of us in the Progressive Caucus, George. Um, you know, we uh, would like to see a, a bit more of a scaled back uh, Defense Department, where we're not taking the lead in every single uh, action wherever it is on the globe, especially in the Middle East. It seems that. Uh, you know, we, from our past experiences there, we don't know the region nearly as well as people in the region do. And while I think when there is a need for us to be involved, we can provide essential backup to people in the region, uh, I think our past experience of uh, trying to lead in this area has not proven uh, wise, whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, you know, clearly a lot of the efforts in Syria have not uh, gone well, and, and it's a huge amount of cost, uh, both in human terms and dollars. So, you know, I, I wish we had a, a bit more of a focus on diplomacy across the board, even with some people that maybe haven't always been our diplomatic partners uh, before we just automatically jump to, to defense methods. And if you look at this current budget uh, and the appropriations bills that we just passed in the last couple of weeks, and it'll be on the floor in the House next week, uh, there's a huge increase uh, going into defense, and it's not uh, that it's going to the people who actually serve uh, us in the military. It's it's often going to military contractors and a lot of things I think are just going to cost us far more down the road. Okay. Dion in Round Lake, Illinois. Dion, you're on the uh, Watch this on YouTube. Dion, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, Trump had a luncheon with Republicans, I believe, on Wednesday, and he said that President Obama uh, lied 20 times about Obamacare. But he, he's saying that if we go to single pair. But the Democrats want we will go bankrupt. Is that true? And how do we go to single pair without going bankrupt? And do you think this is another lie of Trump? Yeah, you know, I think I heard last night, and and I'm not sure if I fact-checked this myself, but I heard in the first six months he's been president, uh, not only have we done virtually nothing in Congress, he's you know he's made statements that he signed more bills than any president, and he's down the list quite a bit. Um, you know, he uh, has he. What I heard is he did 991 tweets. Uh, and most of those uh, fall probably in the either, you know, odd information or misinformation categories uh, more than often. Um, you know, when he says, uh, you know, things about like that about single payer or anyone says that, they're just wrong. I mean, you know, Canada, uh, Europe, you can look across the globe and see, you know, where this works extremely well. Um, you know, the problem is you're going to disrupt a very big, significant, you know, one out of every six dollars in the economy when you talk about health care. And if you actually talk about a big concept like Medicare for all, single payer, single payer uh, a lot of people get their backs riled. And I think that's 
that's why you see people either uh, slow to come, sometimes come on board, even though I think it makes complete logical sense to go that path, or uh, you'll see a lot of resistance because they're supporting the special interests, uh, whether it be the insurance companies or, or others, uh, rather than supporting the American people. So uh, outright lie, uh, many articles are out there showing just the opposite. Um, I think that's our aspirational place to get to. But right now what we're saying is let's just fix the Affordable Care Act. 20 million people now have access to health insurance who didn't before. Things like pre-existing conditions, uh, now you can get coverage. You don't have a lifetime cap. Women are paying the same as men. Let's keep all that good stuff and let's just fix the areas that need to be fixed. And uh, let's, you know, do something about health care and not about tax breaks for the wealthy. Well said. Congressman Mark Pocan on the line with us, taking your calls for the hour and IOT in Cleveland, Ohio. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, Tom. I would like to ask the congressman about um, this bipartisan um, bill that is going through, trying to pass through the Congress and the Senate, um, trying to criminalize um, people that are involved with the DBS. And I mean, they said it's up to a twenty, mil- I mean, a million dollar fine and twenty years in prison. Right. Are you are you familiar with this, Congressman? Yeah, I, you know, I, there was just an article that uh, sparked this week. I haven't seen it like moving, uh, unless again this week I spent um, hours and hours and hours till midnight several nights doing markup for appropriations. But this is the bill trying to ban uh, any attempts at doing uh, the BDS movement, uh, dealing with um, obviously uh, Palestine and Israel. And I, I don't know if. Is something that they're going to push next week. We have been told in the House there could be some sanction bills that may come up. This was not on the list that I saw. I think I saw something in the article this week. The Senate might have had either a, I don't know if a committee took it up or it was just an article about it. But um, I, I don't know, uh, add that there's movement on the bill at this time. But I did see an article popped up this week, and I'm sorry I can't tell you more about what that article was. I just remember seeing it during the week. Yeah, what I've read about it, and and, um, we discussed this some yesterday, is that apparently under this legislation, um, and I I may be wrong on this, but this is is what I've read in the press, uh, because I haven't read the bill itself, um, which is very often almost impossible to do anyway. But even uh, under this legislation, from what I've read in the press, even arguing in a public forum in favor of the, uh, you know, divestiture and the and the boycotting of Israel over the over Gaza and, and uh, Palestine and whatnot, um, just simply advocating, speaking out, could subject a person to 20 years in prison and a million dollars in fines. And there's a bunch of good Democrats who are co-sponsors of this. I'm guessing that somehow this thing got dropped into a, a bunch of members of Congress's laps you know, from a uh, a friendly pro-Israel source, and they just figured, oh, you know, it's some kind of nice pro-Israel thing. Yeah, throw my name on it. And they didn't realize what it is, and this blowback is just going to freak everybody out. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, this is one of those issues, Tom. You know, I've been taking a lot of uh, heat lately from some of the extreme right um, uh, so-called pro-Israel groups uh, who have really a very, very political agenda because I've sponsored things like um, working with the Quakers when they wanted a, a meeting room to talk about the, the plight of Palestinian youth. You know, I've been to the region uh, as recent as a year ago, um, and, you know, I can tell you we, we need to have peace uh, in that region, but you need to have the conversations that have to go on. And when you continue to expand settlements illegally, uh, that runs against everything. When I was there several years ago, we had just started the peace process again. Um, it makes it harder to get to that place. And, you know, I think uh, a lot of the rhetoric uh, that's out there, when I talk to the average Israeli or the average Palestinian, 
they don't abide by that rhetoric. It's kind of the government um, leaders like Netanyahu and some very, very partisan folks who fall in that extremist trap. Real people on the ground just want to see peace in the region, but we've got to get those conversations restarted. You can't continue to expand settlements. Um, you know, they've had some pretty serious uh, prosecutorial actions against some uh, players in Palestine uh, that have violated, uh, many of us think, civil rights. And we're just concerned that the efforts going on right now aren't leading to a peaceful solution. And I would argue, from my conversations there, if you want to fight ISIS, one of the best things we could possibly do to defeat ISIS is have a peaceful two-state uh, settlement in uh, the region, because if you do that, you take away one of the major uh, talking points that ISIS uses to recruit people. So, you know, it's, it's a very tough area. People get very hyper-political. Just like I said, just working with the Quakers alone uh, got me attacked and called anti-Semitic and everything else in the world. Uh, it's a tough region, and people uh, politically get very... Um, afraid because people try to scare you, and it's a tough area for people to really stand up and say, "Look, you know, no one's completely right on this, but we've got to get conversations that get us to a peaceful negotiation." Amen. And it's the best thing for Israel's security, in my opinion. Oh, a absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think we all have said what we want is a two-state solution with the appropriate land swaps, right? I mean, that's yeah. kind of the from both the Palestinian side and the Israeli side. The problem is the actions going on now are going to make it harder and harder every single day to get that done. And that's why we've got to stop any actions that make it harder to get done. But let's get back to that point where we can have that true peace. And if you do that, you'll have done more to defeat ISIS than dropping uh, the mother of all bombs or anything else that we do. Right. Amen. Paul in Round Mountain, California, you are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Good morning, uh, gentlemen. Uh, I, I just uh, uh, was reading these uh, articles about the uh, Democratic, uh, the DCCC. Democratic uh, Camp, uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. Right. Uh, recruiting blue dog Democrats to recruit candidates for the 218 uh, election. Um, these are people that are uh, fiscally conservative. Um, I think, the, and I, I just wondered... Uh, what uh, Mr. Pocant's uh, reaction is to this. Sure. You know, Paul, and thanks for asking that, because I think, you know, the first when I saw the article, or the headline, I should say, I reacted. I'm like, what? What's going on? You know, this, this is crazy, because, um, you know, those are the more extreme elements of the Democratic Party. But that certainly doesn't inspire the base. It certainly doesn't get people who don't traditionally vote out to vote. And when I read it more and, and looked into it a little more, you know, I think, honestly, this was more of an effort by the blue dogs uh, to gain a little bit of muscle and show that they're doing something to try to help win back seats than anything that the DCCC is doing in an organized way, because I can also tell you uh, the DCCC is organizing a lot of good progressives to run uh, in some of these seats. And, you know, um, when you look at someone, again, like a Randy Bryce in, in running against Speaker uh, Ryan, you've got someone that the Cong Congressional Progressive Caucus just made its first endorsement this week of, and yet they're also working very closely with the DCCC. So, I think the the misleading part is that um, I think the blue dogs wanted to get a little press to say, "Hey, look, we've got some muscle. We're not just in the teens of members versus the seventy mid seventies that the Progressive Caucus has." Um, and it's not so much about a, a reality of a shift in policy at the DCCC. Yeah, Congressman, we just have uh, one minute until we're going to hit the a hard break at the bottom of the hour here. Uh, not enough time to put a caller on. 
Um, what are your thoughts on how on, on how the Democratic Party is strategizing uh, going forward? And, and, you know, any advice and suggestions for, for you know, our listeners about you know, how they might participate and interact, things like that? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'm really glad that my good friend Keith Ellison is now, you know, the deputy chair of the party. And I think if people take uh, and listen to what Keith is saying, which is building the party through the grassroots and, you know, focusing more on getting people out to vote than just buying more ads on TV that consultants make a commission on, the better off we're going to be. But it really has to involve a lot of conversations now, not just at election time. And people can join their local Democratic parties, and if they don't like the direction they're going, they can run for leadership and take over those parties. So I think if we really focus on a grassroots party from the bottom up, which I think is what I see happening, because Tom Perez also so, um, you know, as someone who is, it was one of the more progressive secretaries under uh, Barack Obama, we just have to make sure the party actually executes that and doesn't get sidetracked uh, from people who may be in their finance divisions uh, and realize that the grassroots power is what financed Bernie Sanders' campaign. Um, there is power to supporting that grassroots effort, and that's how we win elections. Amen. And Tom Perez was in the studio yesterday talking with us. It's, uh, oh, awesome. Seems like a, a good start, right? <laughs> Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And it's our mid, uh, Middays with Mark show. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. Congressman, you're, you're back with us? I am. Okay, great. Bill in Campwood, Texas. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, uh, this Bill in Campwood. Uh, thanks for what, you know, for all that y'all do. Uh, my uh, complaint is that the DNC just doesn't do enough. Now, I know you might not be able to control that, but I believe they should, you know, every time anybody mentions health care, it should be Medicare for all, and they should pound that, you know, over and over again until it gets through. And you don't see him on TV much. A little bit. Tom had him on the other day, but uh, uh, Tom Perez I've seen occasionally on, but not very often. He needs to go out and get arrested if necessary to get attention. You know, we've got to do something because if we don't, they're going to keep the Senate in the House, I believe. Congressman? Yeah, yeah I hear you, Bill. Thank, thanks for your comments. So, so let me just say this. I, I think sometimes it's tough for the uh, Democratic National Committee because they don't actually run campaigns. Um, you know, you have the Congressional uh, Campaign Committee for Democrats, you have the Senatorial Committee, you have the individual campaigns themselves, you have the 527 groups. The party, really, their job is, in my opinion, more to provide the overall infrastructure to be in place and to have some of those broader general themes like you mentioned. But, you know, they often get blamed for individual elections when, quite honestly, DNC is one of the last entities that actually is involved with each individual election. Now, having said that, I think, you know, what you bring up about taking those big themes and getting out there and showing what Democrats in a big theme are, they can do that now uh, throughout the time going up to the election, and then individual elections will take on their particular issues. But those top issues that, you know, health care should be uh, considered a right and everyone needs to have access to affordable uh, health insurance, they, they should be very, very strong on. And I think they're trying that. It's just, as the DNC, sometimes, you know, that's not where the media goes to first for comment. Now, on Medicare for All, if I can just add this, uh, Tom, you know, I think we need to know, I think we're up to now 115 people uh, in, in the House who are supporting the Medicare for All bill that John Conyers has. It's an all-time high, and it's still increasing every week. And that's because people are out uh, reaching out to their members of Congress and asking them to sign on to the bill. And Bernie Sanders has a similar bill 
in the Senate. So, you know, I think if, if, for people who really care about this as we have this debate on health care, uh, we need to make sure that we're actively calling our uh, members of Congress and asking them to sponsor the bill, because if we can keep this momentum up, it will be a natural part of the conversation on health care. But we've got to keep that pressure up. Charles in Southgate, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, Congressman Pocan, good morning. Good morning, Charles. I wanted to uh, ask you about uh, it's about renewable energy, and I've been hearing about this bill nine eight seven S nine eight seven, the fifty one hundred plan, and uh, despite political ops, you know obstacles, what are the possibilities of that becoming reality? Yeah, well, I, I think you can't say despite political obstacles, right? Because the the reality is. Uh, right now, the House of Representatives is run by this guy named Paul Ryan. The Senate's run by this guy named Mitch McConnell. And the White House has this um, occupant, uh, uh, former reality show star Donald Trump. Uh, given all of that, um, you know, we're going to have an uphill battle on many uh, things when it comes to the environment. We just went through a budget and appropriations process where the Environmental Protection Agency was dinged uh, extremely heavily financially and they're not going to be able to do a lot of the work that they did under the Obama administration. So I think we need our aspirational goals and we need to, need to make the points of why uh, things like solar, I just put eight and a half kilowatts in our house last October. I love paying between 13 and $20 a month for my utility bill. Um, why all of those things make sense and why those things often create jobs here in the U.S. Uh, as opposed to sending all of our money overseas with things like oil. And uh, I think we need to make all those cases, but pragmatically, politically, because that was your question, um, this is going to be a difficult time to see that happen, but doesn't mean you don't stop working on what you want to get to, and you need to make the case so that we can grow that. And then again, in 18, if people who won't change their ways, you can change their faces, uh, those who represent you. But um, realistically, we right now are doing our best to stop deep cuts to environmental protection agencies in Congress. Tom in Portland, Oregon, listening on X-Ray FM. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Congressman, this is uh, Tom. I just wondered if you could address the SHIELD Act, uh, which would harden our grid. I know it seems to be stalled, and I haven't heard much about it recently, and I'd uh, just like to hear what your thoughts on it. Thank you. Yeah, Tom, I'll be honest. I don't know a lot about it. Um, it, it you know, I've been this week literally uh, immersed um, till midnight uh, and 11 p.m., several days, all day markups on appropriations. I don't know um, the status of it, uh, and I just don't want to try to wing it because I, I don't have that information. I'm sorry. Okay. Michael in Imperial Beach, California. Uh, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Tom and Representative Pocan. Okay. Representative Pocan. I wanted to know who is in control of our Middle East policy, because what the news is, is Trump sent Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, who inherited his father's real estate business when his father went to federal prison. Is Jared Kushner actually in control of our Middle East policy? Thank you, sir. Uh, Michael, um, great question, questions that we ask on a regular basis. Um, you know, while uh, you would hope that it would be the professionals, right, within uh, the Department of Defense and uh, within intelligence and others who are helping provide that guidance, it does appear that um, the leading qualification to this White House is that you're the son-in-law of the president, therefore you're an expert on all things, including uh, Middle East policy. Um, so that should worry all of us. You know, the fact that we don't, we're not having a White House that listens 
to the professionals. Uh, and, um, you know, I think from some of the actions we saw this White House take early on with some bombing in Syria to um, many, many other levels of activities, I don't know if I could say there is a coherent policy right now where we're doing in the Middle East, and if it's really left to just the president's son-in-law, that will make it even less coherent. So, uh, Michael, one of the big concerns we have as well in Washington. Wow. Uh, Mark in Valley, Washington. Mark, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman. Um, this is back to that, that BDS bill, and I've not heard anybody talk about this. It, it, let's say it did get passed. Wouldn't that set a precedent to where they could expand that to any type, any type of protest? Well, clear, yeah, you're right, um, Mark. I mean, you know, if, if that's starting to be the path of, of how we do things, um, you could be uh, any issue that they don't want, they could uh, essentially criminalize uh, speech on. And uh, that is one of the concerns that many have. You know, you know, let's just face it, this White House already is doing a lot of things in this Congress. I mean, just in the last week, while we're marking up our bills and appropriations, you know, they um, uh, had a statement uh, condemning UNESCO for something that they did in uh, making Hebron a, a World Heritage Site. And, you know, they're, they're taking on a lot of different little statements and kind of throwing them into bills that, again, aren't that coherent policy that Michael from California was just asking about. And if you start taking uh, more and more measures, regardless of the subject, and making it harder to be able to speak uh, out about it, you're taking away our constitutional rights, which is our highest level uh, right we should have. So I think should those bills ever come to the floor, those will certainly be the debates. Um, But uh, again, I haven't heard Many at all in Congress say that these are the priority bills that they're going to be moving. So um, generally, I'm dealing with whatever I know is coming up, which right now will be budget and appropriation bills. Most uh, in the next week, we'll start that with a mini omnibus around defense, uh, Milcon, and uh, homeland security, which could include, by the way, funding for the wall, which we have to keep our eye on, Tom, uh, mm. for the next week yeah. uh, in the House. Uh, in fact, it will likely include funding for the wall. And, uh, you know, the other issues that are coming up around tax reform and some other things, um, I think that we'll see between July and September. Rob, listening on Sirius XM in Mountain Iron, Minnesota. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good day, Tom, uh, Congressman. My, uh, my question pertains to the repeal and replace is where uh, you just stated that many congressmen and many senators are multimillionaires. Isn't this a direct conflict of interest where the uh, senators and congressmen get to be able to vote for this? And the whole thing is, is they're voting for themselves a tax cut, and they are voting at the same time to kill some of their constituents. Rob, I wish I could um, uh, disagree with you at some level, but what you're saying uh, is unfortunately very accurate. I mean, you know, for many of them, this is a tax cut they'll be voting on for themselves and for many people that they know very well um, that fund their campaigns. And that for many people, this will be uh, essentially a death sentence. If you don't have health insurance and you're sick with a lot of the people who have these very serious ailments, uh, you will die. I, I, so you said it succinctly. And the problem is, um, how do we make uh, our House of Representatives and our Senate more representative of all of us? And you know, I think uh, a lot's going to fall onto 2018, the fall of 2018, in doing that. But, you know, part of what excites me is when I see these candidates that are, are now looking at running who um, don't come from uh, a place of wealth or privilege. And welcome back. Congressman Pocan, my apologies for cutting you off there. Once the, once the machine starts the music, it's out of my control. No worries. So, no okay. Worries. 
Great. Leslie, watching Free Speech TV in Central Square, New York. You are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Hi, uh, Mr. Pocan. Uh, my name is Leslie Dean, and uh, we have a big problem with the FCC. If the FCC was doing its job, you guys in, in the Democratic Party would be winning, okay? First of all, they ran Trump uh, for two years straight, you might as well say, uh, 24 7, 70, 700 days, and a little bit of Hillary and very little Bernie. And, uh, that's wrong. There shouldn't, there, sh- there shouldn't be an FCC if they aren't, if they aren't going to do their job. It's supposed to be equal, you know? And they just, you guys between, uh, Reagan and Clinton and Obama destroyed the fairness doctrine. I mean, if you guys had the fairness doctrine in, you guys wouldn't be losing it all. But Obama, didn't put it in. He had a chance to. He doesn't want to. That tells me that the Democratic Party doesn't want truth coming out either. I mean, if you had a fairness doctrine, would it be no rush limbo, be no Hannity, be no... Well, there there would, Leslie. Actually, just a point of fact, uh, there still would be Limbaugh's and Hannity's, and me, for that matter. Um, It's just that station, what the FCC said was two things. Number one, if a station... Uh, put out an editorial, and I worked in radio back in the 70s. I'm very familiar with this. Um, if a station put out an editorial position, they had to provide space for the other side to rebut it, only if it was the voice of the station, number one. And number two, that stations, radio and television stations, had to do what's called programming in the public interest, which was interpreted to mean, uh, in, in a small way, things like local PSAs, you know, hey, there's going to be a bake sale at the school this week. But the bigger thing was actually providing real news. And that's why all the big networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, all of them lost money on their news operations until after the, uh, the Telecommunications Act, or excuse me, until after the, uh, the, the Fairness Doctrine was blown out of the water in 86, 87, excuse me. And uh, by the end of 87, all three networks, or maybe 88, all three networks had moved their news divisions under their entertainment divisions, and we were thrown into the world of uh, infotainment. So with that, Leslie, thank you for the call. Congressman Pocan, your thoughts? Yeah, Tom, thanks for explaining that. And I think you know, what, what Leslie's saying is correct, right? I mean, with not having the Fairness Doctrine has made it so that news um, doesn't get the same priority that right. it used to. And now we've got an administration that's trying to rewrite uh, things to um, facts and alternative facts and fake news. And now they're trying to further destroy people having uh, information and facts. Uh, instead, you just have to go to uh, Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity to get your information here on the right, uh, which, as we know, isn't really information. That's really, uh, well, that is the fake news that's out there. So um, uh, Leslie's right. Uh, we should be doing everything we can to try to get back to a place where we had uh, a fairness doctrine, where we had a balance of uh, ideas that were out there and an emphasis on real news. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, what has happened is that, you know, right-wing uh, uh, wealthy people, you know, Rupert Murdoch, for example, and, uh, you know, the owners of several radio networks uh, have just bought up all these properties all over the country. Do you see any, any uh, op- possibility that the, uh, that the uh, Sherman Act will be reinforced uh, with regard to media? You know, again, with this Congress, I, I don't see those things happening, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of reforms we need to do if we can take back our, our House of Representatives, our Senate, and our, our White House. Amen. Welcome back. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. Middays with Mark here on the Tom Hartman program. Jeff in Sharpsburg, Georgia, listening on Sirius XM. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. 
Hi, Tom. Thank you, thank you, Congressman Kokan. I really appreciate taking my call. I just had two quick questions. The first one is, uh, well, they're both about the air traffic system. Um, what are your thoughts on the privatization and if it's good or bad for the FAA system? And also, uh, is Congress really aware of the staffing crisis that the air traffic control system is in right now? Thank you. Yeah, Jeff, thank you. Uh, first of all, no, I don't support privatization. Um, you know, the most of the big airlines, although I, I may be wrong on this, I believe Delta may be the outlier on this, uh, want this because, of course, they can figure out how to uh, monetize it and make it so they can make even more profit if it goes that way. This is a public safety, a public uh, good, and uh, I think privatization would be a very bad idea. And on the staffing crisis, I know those of us who talk to uh, the folks who work in those uh, centers certainly know that, what's what's going on, and that we've got to make sure that we're addressing that as well. Um, one other issue I'd, I'd mention, too, I think that we've got to deal with is this uh, competition from these highly subsidized um, uh, airlines uh, from overseas uh, trying to come in and get space, and uh, that's going to hurt uh, some of the, the folks who are working for the, the, the companies that we have here. So there's a number of fronts right now. We're waiting to see what exactly will happen under the Trump administration, but I think this uh, effort to privatize would be counterproductive for consumers uh, in the end. Joe in Pompano Beach, Florida. Hey, Joe, thanks for listening to Series 6. I'm on with Congressman Poking. Uh, yes, good afternoon, gentlemen, and uh, I won't be long. I just keep uh, the issue was raised at different times that why can't, you know, health care insurance companies rather compete between different states throughout our whole country, i.e., I can buy insurance from, you know, Geico from California or throughout the whole, our whole country as well as any other auto insurer for all of us, yet... Right now, that doesn't even get addressed in any of the legislation being put forth. And to me, it seems like it would be better for competition and maybe health costs getting be lowered for, for people that uh, really need it more so than others, say. Yeah, Congressman, I'm, I'm confused by this. I have, I have had, uh, we had health insurance uh, with, I don't want to name the company, but we had with them in Portland. Well, United Healthcare uh, provided us with health insurance in Portland and here in D.C. We've also had it with Blue Cross Blue Shield, which I used to have back in Michigan. It seems to me like all these companies are selling their products in every state right now. Yeah, so a couple of things. One, the studies have shown that there's not a savings out of this. This is one of those talking points that we've seen put out there because it sounds like common sense, right? Why wouldn't you be able to buy outside your state lines? The problem is some states have different requirements on the health insurance, and people could then just be buying the lowest possible common denominator of a health policy, uh, and that doesn't necessarily solve the health insurance side, and we're being told it actually won't really solve the cost side either. So while it's one of those things I think that's easy to put out there and it sounds extremely reasonable, uh, the reality is it doesn't provide cost savings and would reduce the level and quality of health care uh, if it actually uh, was opened up. Right. And GEICO does tweak their, their car insurance policies from state to state to comply with state insurance commissioner policies. So even though they're selling nationwide, just like United Healthcare and Blue Cross and Aetna and everybody else, they do offer actually different plans from state to state. Um, yeah, I, I think ultimately if people are looking for cost savings, uh, you, you look at it, something like Medicare for All single payer because you take away so many of the areas where money is wasted from marketing to administration to profit uh, and other areas. Yeah, and that would be true across state lines. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama, you are on with Congressman Pocan. Um, good afternoon. I want to know if our representatives and our senators actually have 
stock in these health insurance companies. Is this the reason why we cannot have a public auction or expand Medicare because they're more concerned with their quarterly dividends? Yeah, Norma, I'm sure a lot of people probably, if not direct uh, purchase of stock, may have it through, you know, some consolidated plans that they're investing in. The thing is, though, I, I honestly don't think that is the biggest indicator. I just think the fact that uh, so many insurance companies have so many lobbyists and put so much money into political campaigns that that's what gets the attention, right? I mean, people uh, that the people who fund your campaigns, when it's that kind of dollars and that kind of uh, power through that, I think that's what's making people vote against their constituents. I don't think it's necessarily the stock side of things, um, from what I can tell in my conversations with people and, and from what I can see. So I think it has more to do with the political end of the work of some of the big insurance companies, and, and for that matter, uh, Big Pharma and others as well. Gary in Irvine, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman. Uh, I wanted to talk about the wall. You really don't need a wall. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, they let these people come across and and give them jobs. If you if, if you prosecute the companies that allow uh, illegal uh, aliens to come in and, and work. You know, if you stop that and you enforce that law, then I think that uh, you really don't need a wall. Yeah, but that would involve uh, putting rich white employers in jail rather than poor uh, people of color. Uh, Congressman? Yeah, that's not nearly as uh, much on talking point for the Republicans, is it? Um, no. No, Gary, you're, what you say is right. If we had actually the employers follow the law, uh, that would solve much of the problem. I, I would argue, though, the whole premise that people are uh, rushing across the border to come here isn't true and hasn't been true for quite some time. So we're, we're dealing with a fallacy that, you know, really deals more with, um, for many, just their fear of people who have a different color of skin than anything else. So I don't even like to give them the fallacy that there's this bleeding uh, somehow into the United States uh, to do this. However, uh, if you really wanted to address what they claim is the concern, Gary, you're right, you could have employers actually following the law, uh, and that would take care of things. Congressman, we have just uh, in the neighborhood of a minute before the, uh, the end of the hour, uh, your thoughts on the coming week and what we should be looking for, what we should be doing? Yeah, so this is the last week before we uh, leave for five weeks for the August uh, recess. So uh, things to look for, uh, health care still on the Senate side. I think there will still probably be some last-minute attempt uh, possible. And then on the House side, you know, we're doing this first mini-omnibus uh, bill, which will have the wall funding and, and those issues, as well as potentially some sanction bills, and it's not clear yet what they could be. So this is an important week to watch for and call your member of Congress and your senator, because a lot of activity will happen because people are going to go home and they want to, you know, pound on their chest they did something, because let's face it, for the first six months of the year, we haven't done anything um, so watch it. It's going to be an active, fast week, and we need to be vigilant to be on top of things to defeat really bad ideas. And the number for Congress, if you want to call your member of Congress, is 202-224-3121. Um, and, uh, and, and Congressman, uh, a lot of people have been complaining that Republicans are simply not answering their phones right now. What do you do? Um, send them an email, uh, because still that gets in and gets counted as a contact. Um, yeah. So if they're playing that game and they just don't have enough people to answer the phones because more people are active and calling, send that email. If you send a letter, they may not get it for three weeks to Washington because it has to be screened for rice and other things. Send an email. Yeah. What about uh, contacting local districts? 
contact the local district office. They'll keep contact. The, the contacts get counted there as well, and sometimes those phones are easier to get through. That's great. Congressman Mark Pocan, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, congressman representing Wisconsin. Pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Always great talking. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Congressman Keith Ellison, the deputy director of the DNC. Uh, he, as a congressman, he represents the 5th District of Minnesota and does so brilliantly. His website, ellison.house.org, uh, excuse me, .house.gov, and uh, in, in the capacity of the deputy director of the DNC, democrats.org, and you can tweet him at Keith Ellison. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hey, man, great to be on with you. And, uh, you know, you're just, I, I was listening to the show before and just doing some of that base level, you know, uh, Civic education information, very important. Thank we don't you. Do nearly enough of it. We Thank gotta you. Do, we got to do a lot more. Yeah, we do, we do the best we can here. So so there's uh, you know a lot going on in the in, in in Congress right now and in the world and in the Democratic Party. And I understand that you'd like to take some calls from listeners. That you're available for the whole half hour. I am, and I would love to. I love talking to the folks, man. So let's do it. Great. Okay. Uh, before we get to that, I'm just wondering if there's any message that you want to share with folks, or any, anything that you know, your thoughts on what we need to be paying attention to right now politically, where the Democratic Party is at, stuff like that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Let me just say that uh, from a standpoint of uh, winning elections, that I think that isn't a conversation that we all better pay a lot of attention to because when when we lose. Uh, we lose, right? So uh, think, just think about the folks um, who are, uh, you know, having to worry about losing their health care because of uh, who won the last election. Um, I just want to say that the real, the real thing we got to focus on and that we need to do this summer and we're doing it through Resistance Summer is presence. What does that mean? That means that I don't care what message you come up with, you can come up with the best message in the world. If you don't get it to people's doorstep, to their ears, to the radio, through their, you know, through the phone, then it doesn't really matter. We have got to remember that, you know, making sure we got a strong message is part of that is means presence, means being in the room with folks, listening, hearing their feedback, and sharing some thoughts on how we all move forward. It's not just we'll do a poll, come up with some uh, a message or some magic words, and then good, we got it. No, that's not nearly good enough. You've got to then deliver it. And that's why, you know, I, I, I appreciate your show so much because you're getting there, man. And Thank that's you. why, you know, we're pushing the um, this Democrats Live thing that we do, which is a live stream we do every Wednesday from the DNC. And that's why we're trying to push the message out all the time. So the Democrats Live people can see over at Democrats.org every Wednesday at what time? Uh, Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Cool. Yep. OK. All right. You yeah. want to pick up some phone calls? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. Uh, Steve in Simi Valley, California. Steve, you are on the air with Congressman Keith Ellison. Thank you, uh, Congressman. Thank you, Tom. A question. Uh, I'm a FERS retiree, and I know that uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans want to eliminate the FERS Social Security Supplement. So I know they came out with their budget. Uh, I just want to know what the Congressman thought the chances are that they're going to eliminate that on this year's budget. So let me answer that question as honestly and directly as I can. They'd like to eliminate it. And if we uh, don't fight back, they probably will. 
I mean, the budget that they dropped, I mean, I've seen a lot of ugly, scary-looking Republican budgets. I lived through sequester, the Budget Control Act. We've seen all that nasty stuff. This is the single worst proposal I have ever seen from any Republican ever. And, yeah, they're going straight at public employees. They're going straight at uh, the FERS program. For people who don't uh, know what that is, that, that is the federal retirement program that federal employees uh, are in. And it's not unlike other, you know, retirement security programs that other folks work for. But this one is called FERS. You know, they got others. There's CalPERS in California. There's all kinds of different retirement savings programs people are in who work a lifetime. And they've earned that benefit. And yet the Republican talking point is that it's too expensive. We can't afford it. Basically, they want to cut people's retirement security so that they can um, get a bigger tax cut to rich people so that they can use that money to buy off more politicians. That's kind of what their game plan has been and is. I, I can tell you this, uh, likely compromise language will be, oh, well we'll, well, we'll leave the people alone who've already gotten into the program, but we're going to reduce new employees, you know, which is wrong too, right? So uh, they're starting out really bad. Conventional wisdom says that they're going to make some kind of a compromise but the compromise is going to be bad, too. What about people worked a lifetime expecting to retire, right? Let's start there. And uh, actually, people don't have enough money to retire on. We should be talking about how to expand Social Security and retirement benefits. We should be trying to return to a program where you have a defined benefit program as opposed to just, you know, put your money on the stock market and hope for the best. So that's my best answer. Amen. Well said. Todd, in Tacoma, Washington, you are on the air with Congressman Keith Ellison. Hi, this is Todd from Tacoma, Washington. I was wondering about any legislation on the U.S. Postal Service uh, privatization or five-day delivery, or like the FERS you were just talking about, it will affect the post office. So what legislation is out there for the U.S. Postal Service? Let's talk Postal Service. Thank you for the question. Let me just say as a preliminary matter, the Postal Service is a venerated American institution, which has gotten us the mail that we need for literally centuries, started by, uh, I believe, uh, of Benjamin Franklin. It was. He was our nation's first postmaster general, I believe. Yeah, but, but you should also know that the post office uh, has been uh, hiring uh, people of color since immediately after the Civil War, uh, has hired more veterans, more women and has been that place of employment that, uh, you know, people who have been uh, working-class folks and people from racial minorities and women could expect to get employed in and do meaningful and important work and advance themselves, put themselves into a middle-class job. The post office, is, I think, is the biggest public employee union. I might be wrong, but if it's one of the biggest for sure. One of the biggest I, I believe for sure, you're right. I think I am right about that. So th that's just what I want to say off top. So some people want to attack it. Oh, by the way, the Postal Service is not a unit of government. It is a quasi-government corporation, and it, it, and, uh, it has been up until uh, a piece of legislation back in, I believe, 2006 was, made, was definitely in the black, and it would be in the black now if it were not for this ridiculous uh, legislative mandate, which requires them to pre-fund uh, health care uh, and, and, and retirement benefits. Now, okay, now let's talk health, now let's talk post office. 
there the, the, are companies like Pitney Bowes and a few others that are trying to get that money. They want to take over it because they want to take all the profitable centers and then leave the rest, basically the last mile. That means that they want to fly it around and charge you, a, uh, you know, $5 to send a letter, but they want to leave it so that the post, Postal Service can be left with the, with the least profitable part of it, and basically that's the last mile delivery. Um, it's not true that the post office is failing because of the Internet. In fact, because of online shopping, they've seen a boost in parcel delivery. That's important for people to know. But there have been proposals to go to five-day. There have been proposals to have, like, these centralized boxes, which means they don't deliver to your door, but they deliver to some spot in your neighborhood. And there have been legislative proposals on all of that. There have been, uh, I think that, the Postal Service is as big a fight as any uh, because, one, they want to crack that union. Two, they want to take out the profitable parts and leave the rest uh, to wither. Four, three, uh, they want to um, – they don't, they don't like the government. And the Postal Service is quasi-government still. They don't like the idea of the government doing good things for people because they want only private – they want to concentrate power in the hands of, 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 of corporations and individuals, not the public. So they're after the post office. All of us be, need to be clear as crystal about that and fight for it, defend it, and make sure we fight for it. So, yeah, there's plenty of proposals out there to cut the post office, five-day, all kinds of stuff. We should resist it all. In fact, we should be allowing postal banking. This. And welcome back. Congressman, sorry to step on you there. Once that machine starts with the brake music, I, <laughs> I've got no control over it, and it, it shuts us down after about 10 or 15 seconds. No, man, uh, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, okay. Sorry. So you know, so let's, let's pick up some more phone calls here. Uh, Denny. In Berwyn, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Keith Ellison. Hi, uh, uh, Mr. Ellison. Um, I'm really, really concerned about the uh, the uh, leg- uh, the bill for uh, uh, Israel that we cannot uh, um, protest against Israel. I have a real hard time with that because my father, my family, fought the Nazis in the Second World War. They actually stole our homes. And my father lost his hand, and they were fighting the uh, Germans, uh, the Nazis, with pitchforks. And, you know, I've talked to my dad, uh, a couple of people about this, uh, actually, about this. And, you know, this bill, and I'm going to use the word because it's, it's the proper word. You can't hide from it. Doing, throwing people in jail for 20 years, because in the United States, listen, if we're going to get rid of health care and do all this other stuff, I don't even recognize this country. But if you do that... That's, that's as uh, close to Nazism as you can get. And that's the proper word for this. It's not improper to use that word. And my father reminded me once a long time ago, Nazis aren't Germans. They could be anybody. It just depends what's going on and how, who, who's in power. And that's the problem. But to put a law like that, and I'm a veteran, to put a law like that, to even think about that law, to me, is a disgrace to this country, disgrace to the flag. And I, any Democrat that votes for this, uh, I probably won't vote Democratic ever again because this is a this this bill is a disgrace to freedom. Okay, that's what this bill. Congressman, are you familiar with the with the uh, the legislation he's talking about? Yeah, yeah, I have been. I'm familiar with it. I'm still digging into it. I will tell you that it does raise some very scary First Amendment uh, possibilities, uh, and so you know, definitely, I think it's important to to highlight that so that we can all uh, focus our attention on it. Yeah, there was, you know, I noticed there's some good Democrats who, who signed on to this thing. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, a lot of people just 
oh, it's a it's a nice Israel bill. Let's go for it. Not realizing that there was this attack on the First Amendment inside it. it, it just... Yeah. You know, I think but I think that if people raise it up, talk about it, yeah. write about it, uh, that it will give a heightened uh, understanding to the, the critical First Amendment considerations there. Yeah. yeah. And, and we all need to get on that. Uh, we let's see. We just have one minute, Congressman, before we're going to hit a break and rejoin our commercial stations. Uh, but, you know, we're still with our nonprofit stations and with Free Speech TV. Um, in that minute, um, I'm curious your thoughts on the current state of affairs in the Middle East. Right, right. Um, well, you know, uh, one minute to talk about the Middle East. Yeah, wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, well, let me, ju- let me just say this about the Middle East. The United States has historically taken a position on the Middle East, which is essentially transactional. You know, we supported people, supported us. We made sure that there was a free flow of oil. We supported any country that supported Israel, our ally there. And we, uh, of course, were always ready to fight anybody who was ready to fight what they identified as terrorism. Sometimes it really is terrorism. Sometimes it's it's more questionable, like in the case of uh, certain leaders like al-Sisi, I believe, calls certain people terrorists because he wants to uh, marginalize them politically and not necessarily because they're engaged in that. So th- we have a, we, we need to develop a richer network and we need to uh, of, of connectivity with the Middle East as a whole. We need to have better relationships than simply with the Saudis. We need to expand friendships with an allyship beyond Israel. We need to- there we go. Welcome back, Congressman Keith Ellison on the line with us, and Rich in Chicago, listening on WCPT. You are on the air with Congressman Ellison. Hey, Congressman and Tom, thank you so much for the show. I've been thinking about this for a little bit, and I wonder, when a congressman takes the oath of office to support the Constitution of the United States, you know, um, to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide the common defense, and promote general welfare, I don't understand why healthcare isn't a part of that. How do we spend a trillion dollars for the defense of America, you know, for all these weapons and stuff, but not the general well-being of the public? I don't know why Democrats don't scream this at the top of their lungs that they're, you know, they're sticking to their oath and protecting the people by having single payer or a healthcare system that provides healthcare for everybody, not just a few just like we do military protection. Where am I missing it? Well, I think you're missing it because you don't give out those of us who fight for health care every single day any credit. That's where I think you're missing it. I think there's a general sense among some that always trashing what we're doing is the right thing to do. I mean, how can you say John Conyers and Barbara Lee and Bernie Sanders and even me and are not fighting for health care every single day? Of course we fight for it because it's uh, part of the general welfare. We do it all the time. The real problem is that I talk to folks who say, how come nobody's saying anything about X, Y, Z? And it's not true. We are saying it. I'm saying it now. I believe that it is a right to have health care access and go to a doctor when you're sick. That's why I, for the last 10 years I've been on John Connor's single-payer single bill. I mean, but I got to tell you, I, I, I agree with you, but the problem is that there, among so many people, there is just this reflexive need to say the Democrats aren't doing this and not doing that when we're clearly doing it. Yeah. Now, we might not be doing it well enough for you, 
in that case, listen to Tom Hartman. And when you say, when we say something that you think is right, be able to say, yeah, I actually heard Keith Ellison say that he believes healthcare is a right. He said that he believes that that right can be found in the preamble to the constitution about promoting the general welfare. Tell somebody the good news that we're actually on your side, as opposed to say, ah, they never are for anything. I mean, it's, it's just not true. And it's incredibly frustrating when we can't get our own folks to even see that we're for them. Yeah. Part of it is the media, though. I mean, it's like it's like, you know, it's all Trump all the time or all this or that. No, and, that's true. And they very rarely, you know, if, if a Republican, uh, you know, for example, Al Gore just came out in favor of single payer. And right. if a if a former Republican vice president and presidential candidate had come out in favor or against any part of of the Republican health care bill, it would have been national news. But right. when a Democrat says it, the media just ignores it. They're just like, oh, did that happen? Oh, yeah, no. right. We, so we find that interesting. So, I mean, I think that I just want to say to the caller, look, man, I definitely uh, feel you. You know, um, you're not seeing and hearing enough from us. That's why I'm talking today. That's why we're doing Democrats Live. That's why we are working day and night, because there is a growing awareness that you can't just take the right position. You have got to make sure that people know what position you're taking. Uh, and that is as important as taking the position that really promotes what I believe is a constitutional right to to be able to uh, seek and get uh, quality and affordable health care. So Amen. that's the deal. But we need to work together on this stuff. It needs to be a partnership. Um, and in the day of social media, you can tweet out that the uh, Democrats uh, that, that uh, support, you know, $15 minimum wage, uh, support universal health care. Gore came off for single pair. You can help us get that message out, and we need you to. Okay, uh, Mark in San Francisco. We're we're down to ninety seconds here before the uh, before the, before Congressman Ellison has to go, and and we hit a hard break. So, Mark, a real quick question for the congressman. Well, gentlemen, basically, I think the Democratic message should be: there's millions of jobs already in the United States with infrastructure and green energy, and to tie the infrastructure with uh, putting like solar panels on, on buildings, um, putting turbines on bridges, and really push for a jobs program with green energy and infrastructure. I think that's the message that would really carry well in this country. Congressman? I agree. Good idea. And I think a whole lot of folks agree with you. Let's trumpet that to the four corners of the universe so that the world knows that Democrats are about putting people to work and improving our infrastructure and can do both. How is it that, uh, you know, in, in the 45 seconds we have left here, how is it that uh, Trump can say that he's he campaigned on a trillion dollar infrastructure bill and now he's talking about, uh, you know, privatizing our infrastructure? I, it's like whipsaw. Well, Whiplash, you know, he, excuse me. he said he was going to health care. He could get health care to everybody. And it was going to be cheaper. That's not true. Right. He said he was uh, going to, uh, you know, I mean, he said a lot of things that he's already re- reneged on. I mean, this guy is, is it wants to cut Medicaid uh, to, to, to folks who need it desperately. I mean, I think that we got to just, I mean, it's hard to, to admit that you just got lied to and fooled. And, uh, but he did fool people. It's not their fault. He told them something that wasn't true. Yeah. And so now it's time to just fess up and deal with that. And uh, I think that a real infrastructure bill is what we need, just like the caller said. Amen. 
Congressman Keith Ellison, you're doing great, great, great work as Deputy Director of the DNC and representing Minnesota and everything else you're doing. Thanks so much for being with us today, sir. Thank you, sir. Take care. We'll see you next week, maybe. Uh, Yeah, I look forward to it. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us, uh, live from the American Federation of Teachers Radio Row, is Kwame Alexander. Uh, you can, uh, Kwame Alexander is the author of more than 24 books, including The Crossover, a poet, educator, and co-founder of Leap for Ghana, an international literacy program. The website is kwamealexander.com. Uh, you can tweet at, at K-W-A-M-E Alexander, uh, at Kwame Alexander. Uh, Kwame, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So tell us about your program, the, uh, the, the uh, Leap for Ghana program. So I'm building a library in Mm -hmm. Ghana, in West Africa. I've been going to Ghana for five years. Um, I went initially to participate in a ceremony where a friend of mine was becoming the queen of a village. And it was really miraculous and and marvelous. And and they asked me to read to the kids in the school. And I read the 200 kids from my book. Uh, It's a picture book called Acoustic Rooster and His Barnyard Band. It's about a rooster that starts a jazz band with Duck Ellington and Mules Davis. (laughs) I love it. And so I read to these kids in this makeshift classroom with no walls, no ceiling. And, uh, and, I, and after I read, while I was reading, a rooster walked up beside me, which was the funniest thing ever. And then I asked for more books and they brought a book. And I said, where are your other books? Where's your library? And they had 200 kids, 11 classrooms, 11 teachers, and one book in the entire school. Wow. And I decided in that moment I was going to do something to just help, to offer some, you know, some assistance in helping them get more books, train teachers in, re- in, in literacy, um, provide scholarships for kids to go to high school and build a library. So I'm really excited that we're going back on Monday. We cut the ribbon after five years on our library in the eastern region of Ghana. That is great. I, yeah, I know when uh, President Obama went to Ghana, uh, radio, uh, Boli- uh, radio Belisa in, I believe Belisa is the capital city. Um, or- Accra. I, I cried. That's right. I cried. But anyway, the, the town of Belisa has a radio station and they wanted to pick up a, a radio show and they picked up our show and carried it for a couple of years. I don't know if they still are or not, but uh, we were on a, on the air in Ghana for oh, that's great for some time. Yeah. So uh, how can people find out more about what you're doing and, and how can people help out? You can go to uh, KwameAlexander.com to find out sort of more stuff on what's going on with me and the writing and the books. And you can go to Leap for Ghana, L-E-A-P as in Paul, F-O-R, Ghana, G-H-A-N-A, dot com or dot org. And you can find out more information about the work we're doing with the library and, and also donate, whether you want to donate books or, or cash. Cash is always great. Yeah, that's absolutely marvelous. Right. And, and, and what else are you up to right now? Writing books, man. Writing novels for kids, trying to inspire kids, trying to entertain and empower kids. Uh, traveling to schools and, and conferences and speaking about my love of literature and uh, and taking my kid to basketball and tennis camp every day. Yeah, that's great. That is wonderful. <laughs> KwameAlexander.com is the website and also LeapForGhana.org, you said? Right. You got yeah. it. Okay. And you can tweet him at uh, Kwame Alexander. Kwame, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been great talking with you. I, do, I, well. I do appreciate it. Uh, also on the line with us right now is Randy Weingarten, the uh, president of the American Federation of Teachers. AFT.org is the website. Uh, president Weingarten, welcome back to the program. It's been too long. I know, Tom. I mean, first off, 
you've just been too busy fighting all the fights and making sure that there is some accurate reporting about what's going on in crazy town here. Yeah, we are doing our best. We are absolutely doing our best. And we just had uh, Kwame Alexander on from the AFT uh, Radio Row. Um, How's everything going with the American Federation of Teachers? Well, look, you know, this is what's so unbelievable right now. We have in Washington, despite the heat, you know, 1,400 educators from around the country who often come on their own dime to actually be in a conference to hone in their craft and to do and to learn new strategies to actually help kids, individual kids, get a good education. That is who public school school teachers are, and that is who our union is. We spend the money, we devote the resources to doing this, um, this kind of professional development. And meanwhile, when we're here doing this and fighting against the budget cuts that DeVos and Trump have put in, to eliminate all summer school programs, all after-school programs, all lowering of class size, all professional development programs. We're here doing that and fighting those budget cuts. Meanwhile, Betsy DeVos is, is meeting with the corporate lobbyists, the billionaires, the privateers who want to privatize education, and she takes us on as opposed to helping us help school children. And, and frankly, she wants to do this as a private citizen, as a gazillionaire, a billionaire. You know, I, you know, the First Amendment allows people to do whatever they want to do. But she, how dare she do this as a sworn, per, as a person who's taken an oath of office to protect and defend and help all children? How dare she do every, the, the, the things she is doing to undermine, destabilize, and defund public education, which is the only system of education that has been there for the children, for all of the children in the United States of America. Yeah, I think when when uh, uh, Reagan put um, Bill Bennett in charge of the education department, which in itself was kind of a debacle. I mean, Bennett had campaigned uh, when he ran for president in, uh, I think it was 76, on uh, ending the Department of Education. Right. I mean, it was just like Betsy DeVos. It's like, but... But but Bennett didn't do anything close to the damage no, that Betsy DeVos right. is doing. This is strategic. Exactly. This is well funded. It's in exactly. every state. Uh, exactly so what can right. what are you doing? What is the AFT doing, the American Federation of Teachers and other teachers unions doing to fight back against this? And what can we do? What can I do? What can our listeners do to support your efforts and to stand up for our public schools? Fantastic. So there's four things that you can do. And I really I really appreciate the question. Number one is to know what the truth is, that we resist injustice and we fight injustice as we have the AFT for the 100 years of our history. You know, we're not perfect, but that is what we do. And number two is that we reclaim the promise of public education, meaning we fight for the things that we think will work to help all kids learn. And so, so what we are doing right now is we are fighting against the federal budget cuts um, that go against schools. And in state after state, we've been fighting that as well. So when, you know, our, our teachers and parents go into communities around the, the country, and when we go in and ask for communities' help, um, we need that help. We know that parents are with us. We know communities are with us. Three-quarters, a recent poll we just took said three-quarters of the people polled are opposed to the divorce um, uh, Trump budget cuts 
and they're also opposed to these kind of defunding of public schools in order to give them to charters and vouchers. So right now, as we're speaking, people can go to their federally elected officials, senators or congresspeople, and say, please vote no for the DeVos um, uh, Trump budget cuts to education that will directly hurt kids. That's number one. Number two, help us when we are helping when we're doing home visits to, 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 um, to parents in schools. Help us when we are fighting to make every public school a place where parents want to send their kids and educators want to work and kids are engaged. Seems like, like some solid, solid stuff. Um, what, what is your prognosis for the future? What, how, how, what's the, what are the trend lines right now? Look, at the end of the day, people are, you know, what we're seeing is that people are really supporting public schools. And when it comes to, just like in healthcare, when it comes to the divorce agenda in public schools, they are the divorce agenda to eliminate public schools, because I agree with you, not Reagan, Bush, no Republican president has ever actually actively tried to destabilize and defund public schools at the same exact time as they were promoting other alternatives. Some of them promoted other alternatives, but they also thought that public schools were important. This is the first time we have somebody who's actively trying to end public schools as we know them. So what's happening is that people are rising up and people want their public schools. They want them to be, you know, the ones that don't work, they want them to be better, but they want their public schools. So I think if we continue this fight and continue to resist injustice and, 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 and have a path forward that people support us on, I, I think that we will prevail. But there's a very, very important event in between these days of 17 and 18, which is the November 2018 elections. If people vote for people who believe in public education, believe in, in, in having a good economy that works for all, then we will love that our podcast will be good. Amen. Okay, Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, AFT.org. You can tweet her at rweingarten. Uh, president Weingarten, thank you. Thanks so much, Tom. Really Great appreciate talking. it. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.